Hello, and welcome to the latest installment of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely, here with my co-host, Andrew Gutman, and we are two accidental activist parents who spoke up about what was happening in our children's schools. And now we talk about those issues and education in general from a parent perspective with the hope of finding some solutions. And today, we are very happy to welcome to the show, Stella O'Malley. Stella is a psychotherapist and author who works in private practice in Ireland and focuses on parenting, family dynamics, and working with teenagers. She is also the author of several books, including her most recent, Fragile, about overcoming anxiety and stress, and also was the main presenter and writer of the documentary, Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk, which was released in 2018. But it's made me remember what I was like when I was a kid. Because when I was a child, I was convinced that I should be a boy. I lived like a boy, everybody treated me like a boy, and I was accepted as a boy. And that brings me to a puzzling question. If I'd been a child today, I'm absolutely certain that I would have transitioned. And where would that have left me? Stella is also the founder of Genspect, which is how she came on our radar. And Genspect is an international alliance of professionals, parent groups, trans people, detransitioners, and others who seek high quality care for gender distressed young people. And they have concerns about the currently popular gender affirmative approach and favor therapeutic approaches that offer a more exploratory approach to gender. And they are active in 20 countries. And Stella is also clinical advisor to the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, SEGM, and a founding member of the International Association of Therapists for Desisters and Detransitioners. And she too has a podcast titled A Wider Lens. So welcome, Stella. Hi there. So, well, we'll jump right in. And um, Stella, you have a very accomplished resume as a therapist, um, particularly on trans issues. But you also have a personal connection with this topic, um, with your own story as a child who struggled with their gender. You were a girl who desperately wanted to be a boy. And I was wondering if we could start there and hear how that childhood experience helped ignite your desire to start speaking out on these issues. Yeah, it's very much the reason why I am speaking out on these issues. So when I was a kid, from as far back as I can remember, around about three, I would say, from what my mother tells me, I very, very emphatically wanted to be a boy and I was very sure of it. And the phrase that is often used clinically nowadays is if the child is insistent, persistent and consistent. And I was all of those for many, many years. And I didn't I didn't waver on any level. I knew I wanted to be a boy. I knew I'd be better as a boy. I still think, actually, I probably would have been better as a boy. I wasn't born like that, but I, I can see where I was coming from if you follow me, that it, it, it made sense. And um, it was a very different time. It was Ireland in the 80s and uh, 70s, 80s. And I uh, was left to be whoever I was. There. It wasn't a labelling time. It certainly wasn't a time. I wasn't getting brought off to clinics to discuss myself and my deeper self. It was I was left to it. Now, you know, it was very much the kind of the age of benign neglect. And I'm not saying a lot of my childhood was very difficult. But looking back, the lack of penetration around that might have given me freedom to work it out. I'm not quite sure what I think should have happened. You know, I do know my childhood, like an awful lot of kids who have gender dysphoria. I now know I followed the very classic pattern, 
which is it's perfectly easy to be gender nonconforming as a child. Three, four, five, six, you're engaged in magical thinking. So you just think if I convince everybody around me, I'm a boy, which I did, that's enough. You know what I mean? I've got them all sorted. So therefore I am a boy, just like you convince a lot of things. Now, we still engage in magical thinking as adults, but we do it very emphatically as a kid. And I did. And then there comes a kind of a reckoning for anybody who's gender nonconforming like I was. And it's in and around puberty, not necessarily because of puberty, but because of growing up, a kind of a consciousness of who you are in society and how other people see you. And that was actually devastating for me. I was very isolated. I was very frightened and lonely and scared and embarrassed and ashamed because I realized everybody had actually been pandering to me. And I'm sorry, I, what age are, are you? I suppose we're talking 10. And by the way, you know, in, in Ireland, you wear school uniforms. And in our school, you know, the boys wore trousers this way back when everybody, the boys wore trousers, the girls wore skirts. And we all had a jumper and a, and a, a you know, a, a sweater and a white shirt. But um, I didn't wear the skirt. I wore trousers. So that's the sign of like these days there'd be a policy made around that. You know what I mean? While for me, it was just they just let me be. And were you the only child that was that was struggling with this amongst your peer group? Oh, uh, there was other kids who were calling themselves tomboys, but I was very dismissive of them. I thought they were like, you know, pathetic versions of what I really was. <laughs> I was doing, <laughs> I was incredibly patronizing about these silly little girls who tried to be boys because I knew how to do it. So there was those. I, I really consider myself like nothing to do with them. They were an embarrassment to my existence. And um, there was a second question there. Somebody... Yeah, I was curious how the, how, how the other kids... Reacted oh, yeah. towards you. So the other kids react. That's a, it's a good question. So I was hounded like an awful lot of kids. I now know because I've really immersed myself in this world. I now know it's very common for kids like me. We were hounded by, are you a boy or a girl? Everywhere I went, are you a boy or a girl? Are you a boy or a girl? So people knew something was going down. And that was a question. It annoyed me. So sometimes I'd answer a boy. Sometimes I'd answer in a very, frankly, non-binary way. I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that right. meant <laughs> so I I kind of I was quite aggressive with it I was quite assertive with it and I was quite intimidating with it and I knew I was and this is a key insight for children today that I knew I was kind of impressive and shocking to adults and children that I was so sure of it and that my force of personality could basically over, overpower whatever anybody else is thinking I see that in kids today do you know what I mean? That their certainty is actually quite unnerving for everybody else. Now that I've studied and I, I'm a psychotherapist and I know a lot about the, the psyche, I know that certainty is not a sign of great mental health. Certainty is the, 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 the natural human condition is actually uncertainty. You, you know what I mean? And so that kind of overpowering certainty wasn't it's, it's impressive, but it's not necessarily very healthy. But then, yeah, puberty came and a consciousness of life is difficult and people are pandering to me and the adults actually don't buy it, even though they're nodding along. They don't buy it. And I was utterly, utterly mortified, humiliated, embarrassed. I felt seen. It was horrible. It was really, really horrible and had a good few years of a horrible puberty. I didn't know how to hell to get out of the corner I had put myself in. I couldn't get out. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to become just an ordinary person. And back then, I suppose medical transition wasn't a, a feasible option. It just wasn't an option I would take seriously. It was vaguely in the back. It wasn't even an option. 
Did you know about it? I'd say had you asked me, I would have thought, yeah, I saw something about a pilot once, but it's something people laugh at. And I I know I took myself very seriously. And um, I remember that's one of the reasons why I felt so embarrassed, because I thought, oh, my God, everybody's just been nodding along. And they've all that was crucifying to my ego. It really was. I, I wouldn't underestimate it. And I had to save face. And I was busy saving face. I remember one girl who was really tough and really kind of what I would consider a very kind of, you know, quite a cool girl. And she came up to me and she put me against the corner and she said, I was once like you. And it's really hard to get out of. And you need to watch yourself. And I remember I was in the corner going, and she's about five years older than me. I remember her very well. And I remember thinking, she doesn't know. I'm trying to get out of it and I can't. So that got said to me. But it sounds like took- somebody told you some pretty hard truths, which kind of helped. You did me a favor in- that day. And I didn't even answer her. I just was like, uh, you know, because kids can't articulate. But I remember slightly panicking, thinking, I know, I know, but I can't get out. I can't get out. I remember thinking that I can't get out. And it took me some years, some years to pull out. But then by the time I was, you know, whatever age, it's hard, very hard to put ages on this. All I know is puberty was horrible. By the time I was 15, I was coming around. By the time I was 16, I was realizing I was I had a body that other people found attractive. And I slowly came to terms with myself. Certainly now, even though I think I would have been a great boy, um, I think being a mother is probably the most important thing to me. So I'm glad I didn't medically transition. Many years later, I became a psychotherapist. Many years later, I noticed this debate. And I thought, where's all the kids that were like me? Because I was full, fully fledged in. And that's why I started to engage. Were you getting any sort of therapy, therapeutic help at in your teen years to deal with this? Or were you doing this on your own? I did it completely on my own. And I think uh, there's a, there's a pro and a con in that. I remember thinking this is so hard. This is one of the hardest things I'll ever say. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I remember thinking this is one of the hardest things I'll ever do. It's hard to explain how awfully lonely I was. Did this. you have anybody to talk to no. about this? It was just 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 yourself, your thoughts oh. in your own head. Yeah. And, and you you mentioned you know difficulty with adults, family, teachers, both. Yeah, just everybody. Nobody. I mean. Yeah, no, but okay. it was totally on my own. But okay. it did end up that I did end up, I think, a, a strong, very thoughtful, very, very intensely kind of insightful about who I wa- was and how to get out of difficulty. So it did work with me. I'm very aware that somebody else with a different bounce of the ball would not have coped because it was horrible. So I, I really think I could have done with some guidance, you know what I mean, looking mm-hmm. back. But no, I didn't get any which is eventually then what you became is a psychotherapist. And so later, and you, how long, I guess, how long were you practicing before you started realizing that you needed to speak out on some of these trans issues and yeah. the care that, that children were getting? Oh, many years, must be 10, 12, 15 years. I, I was practicing psychotherapist and I'd written some books, you know, about bullying, about performance and anxiety, you know, about, you know, a lot of things around parenting and childhood. So I was, I was very much in the mental health field and I wrote for the, you know, the Irish media a lot about different issues. And I was just aware of a growing kind of story that was just coming into the media around trans issues. And I, I always had an abiding issue that an abiding interest in, in trans issues, because I think I knew that that was a road I didn't take. It just always took my interest much more than everybody else's. I, I, there's no doubt about that. I And I read a story that, 
just absolutely blew my mind, which was Coral, Corey and Cyril Doty. They're from Canada and um, the parent is a non-binary parent and gave birth to a, a child who was perfectly healthy and their sex wasn't in doubt. But uh, the, the non-binary parent took the Canadian government to court for the right to declare the child you for unassigned or unknown. I think it might, I don't know, it might be N now for non-binary. I don't know. But at the time it was you. And when I read that, I just thought I have to say my piece. I have to say something about what happened to me because what happened to me was really, really very intense. And so I wrote it. And from that, everything has kind of, I've got very, very immersed. And I didn't used to comment on this issue for the first couple of years that I was involved in it. I had my own story about what happened to me, but I didn't dare comment about it because it's so dense. It's so complicated that the research is so difficult to read that it took me a good few years for me to say, I think I know what I can say. I, I feel like I I know my stuff. And now I'm I'm studying for a PhD in this subject, gender dysphoria in children and adolescents. And I feel like, yeah, I, I can say that I'm expert in it. I, I know everything about this subject. I have fully immersed myself in it. And it's incredibly complex. It's not a simple, it's not at all a simple issue. One, one of the initiatives that you founded was Genspect. And I should mention that we just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with a lot of your uh, activities and, and qualifications in this area. So feel free to talk about others as they're relevant. But we would like to hear about Genspect. This is something that you launched, um, but but it wasn't the first uh, 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 initiative that you that you put out there. You've been talking about this. You were a little tip of the spear, really, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. in terms of um, this getting out into the media and speaking out? Because I know, you know, for the last four or five years, at least of, of material I've seen. So mm-hmm. if you would just give us a sense of some of the activities, but especially Genspect. Okay, yeah. So 2017, I wrote that article, you know, inspired by that story from Canada. And then I did a film called Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. And that was quite a big deal. And the concept of that film was there's a 4,000% rise in females seeking medical t- transition. Now, that's a phenomenal number. If there was a 4,000 rise in anything, in the sale of baseball bats, you'd say, what? Sorry? What sort of? Yeah, it's an extraordinary number. And so there's a 4,000% rise in females seeking transition. Could any of those females be like me? That was the premise of the film. And we were told for that question, it was transphobic. Now, that kind of lit a fire in me of like, that is not a transphobic question. That's just a very valid question. Were you and surprised by that, by the reaction? I, or did I you wasn't. sense that that's where the movement I was? something was, I thought like everybody who joins this uh, this uh, field, I thought my my genuine compassion and curiosity and openness and tolerance would would carry the day that people would realize, I know she's really genuinely just wants to help and create a a better world. I thought that would carry. But um, I did think I would also get closed down. And my God, we very much got closed down. So I kept I stayed involved. Like I say, it took me a few years to move beyond just speaking about my own uh, experiences. And I started to study the subject. I I founded the Gender Dysphoria Support Network, and that's just for families. And I founded it because of COVID. I I give a lot of talks, as you can see, I talk a lot. And um, I give a lot of mental health talks. And uh, when COVID came, everything closed down and suddenly I was free. And loads of parents and loads of people have contacted me saying, I'm very distressed about my child. They have autism. I'm very distressed about my child. They have a lot of anxiety. They've been diagnosed with an eating disorder and they're fixating on gender. 
And so we ran some parent support meetings and it started off with one a week, turned into two week, three week, four week. Within about three weeks, we had four a week. And I was like, wow, this is very big. And it just extended as fast as that. And within a year, I decided to found GenSpec. So that would be last year, June 21, because this is all you know chronological. And uh, the reason why I founded GenSpec was I realized we needed a rational, reasonable voice in this discussion. We needed to kind of highlight, let's say, issues such as the parents. There was all this secret network of parent groups from all over the world, all saying the same thing, which is I have a very vulnerable child who has a lot of different diagnoses. And the doctors who are treating my child are only looking at gender and they're letting all the they're letting gender overshadow, you know, the the autism, the ADHD, the social anxiety. And this doesn't seem right. And I don't think I'm getting good quality care for my child. On top of that, we're also kind of seeking to help detransitioners. These are people who've transitioned and then stopped the transition because it hasn't worked out. And we started a program recently called Beyond Transition, which is to help not only detransitioners, but also people who are lost in transition because so many people have contacted me over the years and they say, I transitioned. It's a very difficult life. If I had my life over, I, I wouldn't be transitioned, but I have transitioned and I, I'm going to live this life because to go back would cause so much upheaval. And I'm not sure how far I can get back. You know, it's very hard to be a balding 35 year old woman, you know, when, when you look like a man. It's a, it's a very hard ask. So as a result, there's an awful lot of people who have been impacted by affirmative care, frankly. And it is uh, we're helping them with, you know, low cost counselling, with therapeutic support groups, with job skills. A lot of them have lost a lot of their lives to gender politics, identity yeah. politics. And so we've done this really wide ranging programme that will help them. So we're doing lots of things in GenSpec, but more than anything, we're just trying to get information out into the public eye of can we have a reasonable discussion about what's the best long term options in any given situation. And that's all we're looking for. So two two questions. One, are you finding that there are people willing to have a reasonable discussion about this who might be on the other side of the argument? And then two, what, what explains, I guess, both the explosion as well as the shutdown of debate on this topic? Uh, because it seems that's, that's how these discussions go. Um, I'm finding it's very interesting, for example, in the US, because I would say a year ago, there was very little, very little we're speaking. And it's really shot up in the last 12 months. It has been an extraordinary explosion of, of organizations, of pushback, of articles in the media. And so that has been amazing because let's say Genspec started in June 21 and we're now, what are we, September 22. And there's been a, it's been a seismic change. So if that speed of change continues, I think the US will be really quite different in a year. Because because it's changed so much in the last year. So that's one thing. But no, I found that people who are pro affirmative care, they're they're very entitled to be pro affirmative care. But my argument would be they're not entitled to to shut down debate. And we have been silenced on on many, many ways. For example, Wikipedia, the, we, we got kind of very much. I would say attacked, you know what I mean, that they, they kind of, you know, every single time we try and correct a skewed sentence, there'll be many, many activists coming in to argue it. And it's like they've, they've no interest in the in the truth or they've no interest in in genuine. Like, let's just let's just kind of talk about this. They, they, it's not 
good faith. That's the what do you issue. think their motives are? I feel that when somebody is so driven in that way, my knowledge of psychology would say this is a fear driven response of I need to stop you. I need to stop you now. I'm putting my fingers in my ears because I'm afraid of what you're saying. That that would be my feeling of what, what it is, is there's a, there's a very sometimes people who are filled with fear are very aggressive. If you follow me, anxious, anxious rage right. is a thing. You, you know what I mean? But what, why, why are they so fearful? I think in other words, what's, what's, what's the their end game, maybe? Well, well, yeah, what's the underlying motive here? Of, I think the underlying getting as many kids as possible. I mean, why? I think the underlying motive is they have either um, been very involved in the transitioning of their child or they have transitioned themselves, one or the other. And the idea, the kind of the the, the terrifying idea that they have actually massively partaken in, for example, harming their child is so terrifying that they can't even open that. They can't even look at that monster under the rug. They can't even, they just stand on it as fast as possible with very sharp, very quick attacks to silence the person because it's so, so frightening that they might have done this. And th that's my feeling of why they're so anxious to shut down debate. And also there's the feeling of so many people who have transitioned, they always think the next surgery, the next surgery, the next hormonal intervention will be the one that will make them happy. And maybe it will, maybe it will. But they are clinging on very, very tightly to that idea. And somebody else who has an alternative kind of outlook is, I would argue, very frightening for them. And they, they don't want to give space to the fact that you might have made a mistake. I think in general, humans don't like admitting that we made mistakes. We like to tell ourselves, oh, that's what we did, needed to do to get here. We don't do it very well. And I feel that some of these people have transitioned and they could have had other roads and it's difficult for them and they want to stop. That's my feeling. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. If we had decent debate, we would know better, but we don't have it. So I don't know. We'll be back with more with our guest Stella O'Malley right after this. Hey, everybody, this is James Lilix. Sorry for the interruption, but we want you to tune into the Ricochet flagship podcast on Friday. That's right. Peter Robinson will be there. Rob Long, well, who knows where he's in the world now, but Charles C.W. Cook will be sitting in for him. And we're going to talk to Troy Senek about his new book, Man of Iron. And who is that man? It's not Bismarck. You'll have to tune in to find out. That's the Ricochet flagship podcast this Friday. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of schools. Um, we are seeing here increasingly in the U.S. that schools are playing a role in the transitioning of kids, where schools are instructing teachers to use pronouns that the that the kids prefer versus something that perhaps a parent might know about. And I was just wondering your perspective on that, um, what, what you've seen, and I guess what you think the appropriate role is, if any. Um, so if you could talk about that a bit. Well, um I'd like to start with the appropriate role for you know schools is to give education and to make sure everybody is safe. And there's there's an, an issue with schools presuming that that they can do other things that I feel is quite authoritarian and quite high-handed. So that that's one thing. 
Jensbeck does, has let out um, uh, a guide to schools, which I think is a very helpful guide that shows, you'd see it easily on the website if you go looking, but it shows that it's kind of like social transition is an active intervention. It's a psychosocial intervention that actually carries great weight. We've never done it before in history. We've never on a mass scale changed children's pronouns. This has never happened. So we, these children are in a Petri dish. We have never actually carried out this experiment before. And I would say that I don't think social transition should happen without clinical supervision, because I don't think teachers are qualified to carry out this active intervention. I also think that um, it's important for schools to acknowledge that this is a thing. It's called social transition. So one parent, I remember their child was socially transitioned by the school and they never, the school never informed the parents because for starters, they went on the child's word that the child was unsafe rather than realizing that they had known these parents for quite a number of years because there was older siblings and there'd never been an issue. So my, my question for starters would be, if you thought the child was unsafe, your job is to bring social services. Your job is to get other people involved. Your job is not to carry out serious psychosocial interventions without telling the parents and not involve anybody else. It's so way out of their wheelhouse. It's, it's, it's not appropriate. But when the parents did find out, they went into the school and um, they said, you shouldn't have socially transitioned my child. And the teacher answered, what social transition? And the parents said, you did it to my school, my child, and you don't know what it is. And they just thought, oh, so we just, you know, they didn't even know the concept of what social transition is, which it is, by the way, for anybody's wondering, change of names, change of pronouns, go to the different school team sports or go to the different bathrooms or, you know, a general a change over socially, not medically, to the opposite sex. And so this school had carried this intervention out and they didn't even know. They just thought they were kind of dabbling in pronouns. I'm like, who do they think they are? Who, who exactly did they? It's so way out of their league. They didn't know what they're doing. And so I think it's an incredibly high handed and appropriate response. And I think if the school is worried about these children, well, why aren't they getting social services involved? What the hell are they doing? Just diving in with their half-baked solutions that they know very little about because when you ask them about it they just think they're being positive in a very unthought out way and generally they when you question them which I have done it'll be because I thought it would make the child feel good in the short term that's that's their answer and I think the involved adults in anybody's life whether it's a teacher or a principal or a parent it's we our job as adults is to keep an eye on the long term Yes, the children want lots of things in the short term. Our job is always to keep an eye on the long term. And so I'm not really very interested in adults who are keeping children happy in the short term. I don't think that's really very responsible. Let's say there's a, a family who has a child that says they want to transition and they want the school to assist them in that regard. Oh, yeah. What's the role of the school there? And how how, how would you recommend that they go about it? Yeah, and it's a, it's a really difficult, tricky issue. I think uh, there should be clinical supervision. I think that child needs uh, a mental health professional who is willing to oversee this process. I don't think it should be done fast. I think there needs to be an impact assessment and a risk assessment in the school. Because if this is, for example, uh, let's say a 14-year-old girl 
if she is suddenly going to transition to being, for example, a boy and use he, him pronouns and go to the boy's bathroom and go to residential nights and stay over for an activity or to go onto football teams or, you know, sports teams and um, effectively that child will one day be 18. And so what might be kind of almost feasible at 14 won't be feasible when they're 17. But policies are being made on the basis of, ah, look, sure, this this child is, we'll, we'll make this policy around this child, not realise, no, you're making a policy for the school. And this has a long-term impact. And just because it seems okay this term doesn't mean that it's actually a long-term solution because there's an awful lot of other issues arise and so I, w- I would say the impact assessment on the school, there's also other children who have additional needs who find it very difficult to handle the change of pronouns, especially if there's a regular change of pronouns. Quite a few different schools have told me that the, the change of pronouns doesn't happen once or twice. It's happening quite a few times. And then um, it feels very confusing to other children. It feels very confusing to the, the school. And so there needs to be some guidance and protocols and procedures that look to the end of the sentence rather than, yeah, this will please this child here today. I don't think that's good enough. And you mentioned bathrooms, and I had a quick question about that. If you have a situation where a child who says that they identify as a different gender, um, let's say a boy who identifies now as a girl wants to use the girl's bathroom and other girls are uncomfortable with that, is it right for those other girls to have to go use the unisex bathroom if they're uncomfortable or for that that child who is now identifying as the other gender to go do that. Um, and this is actually based on a, a situation that I'm aware of. Um, and quite frankly, I think this is an issue parents and in, in schools are dealing with. This is why I think an impact assessment and a risk assessment has to be taken out. You know, there's a lot of ways to be vulnerable and there's a lot of ways to feel unsafe. And so one cohort doesn't kind of have the have the kind of, you know, the the lead on being vulnerable and therefore they have a special position. So I think it's very important that we, we're aware of the vulnerabilities of lots of different people. Period shame, especially navigating periods between the ages of 10 and 14 or so, is very difficult for girls. It's not being said enough, but it's very difficult for girls, especially because a lot of girls are getting their period earlier and they're not really emotionally mature enough to handle it. And it's a lot. And, you know, there's there's awful stories of kids in unisex toilets where where the, the boys are timing the girls in the in the cubicles and things like that to figure out whether they're on their period. And, you know, re- really quite crass, puerile, childish stuff that we can all imagine happening. I very strongly and not only I, but Jen Specht have have come to the conclusion that if a child is identifying and if they have a mental health professional is overseeing the process and if all the kind of all the risk assessments and impact assessments are in single use cubicles are necessary as opposed to unisex, which is a group. I'm talking about single use, single occupancy. Do you know what I mean? So that there's an option for a single occupancy that you can go in on your own. There's nobody outside. It's a single occupancy. And I know that's difficult for schools because some schools aren't equipped for that. And I think they will have to equip themselves because I can't. A, I don't see this subject going away anytime soon. And B, I don't think it's fair to ask one group, maybe it's the girls, maybe it's somebody else, to kind of suffer their lack of safety for somebody else. Everybody needs to feel safe. Everybody needs to feel that they their needs are acknowledged. 
And I think it's very important that we, we do that with single occupancy bathrooms. I want to go back to something that, that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is the dramatic rise in girls with gender dysphoria. Is it fair to categorize that as a social contagion? I mean, do you think that's accurate? I do think that's accurate. I, I'm pretty certain it's accurate. The thing that I suppose that most, more, more than anything, seems to give it away as a social contagion is once you've experienced it in your school, not too many people will argue that there isn't some element of social influence involved because you see it as a teacher or as a principal, you see it. But when you haven't seen it, you probably don't believe it's it's happening. But what happens is that, you know, one one person comes out as trans and then other people do. And, and it happens quite often. And when you look at the stats, you'll realize it happens in clusters and it happens in friendship groups. And there doesn't seem to be any good reason for this happening before. And we've had social contagion thousands of times, especially, it has to be said, among female adolescent girls. They're they're particularly prone to it. And I've looked into social contagion. Why are female adolescent girls so prone to social contagion? They co-ruminate. They look for um, things in common. They talk about the problems endlessly and they kind of sympathize, over empathize with each other. It's all a way of bonding in that very female adolescent way. And it's perfectly ripe, all the ingredients for being a bonding, adjusted female adolescent are actually all the ingredients ingredients for social contagion. Hence, we've seen fashions, we've seen awful things, but like we've seen great things and awful things. You know, suicide is highly contagious. There's an awful lot of things that can be anxiety can be very lots of things can be. It's it's not that doesn't denigrate their experience. I, I think that they could still have very intense experience. I don't know why people act as if this is some sort of terrible. Yeah, certainly they're influenced socially, very, very influenced socially. And there is some element of social contagion as there has been for anorexia, as there has been for self-harm. This is this isn't new. <laughs> but the social, I mean, what is new maybe is social media in the last oh, yeah. five, 10 years. How much, how much has social media influenced this? Social media is massive. And do you remember back in the noughties, the pro-Anna sites and the pro-Mia sites? You might remember them because you, you, as you're a male, Andrew, that there was pro-Anna was pro-anorexia sites and pro-Mia was pro-bulimia sites. They were big in the early noughties. They were very big and they kind of got shut down. They still exist, but they've they've been watched because they were really, really rampant for social contagion. So that was back in the noughties when our dial-ups were pretty bad. I'm talking about early, 010203. And now it's smartphones. And, and if you look at the numbers of, um, you know, teenagers becoming involved, you, you can really see it with the rise of, of digital, social media, you know, smartphones in our pocket. And I'm not saying that it's directly linked. I'm saying certainly social contagions can happen so much faster online than mm-hmm. anywhere else. It's phenomenal. Well, I, I got clued in that this could be a social contagion when they shut down debate about it being a social contagion. Remember Lisa Littman's paper? I thought there has to be something to it because they want to absolutely silence that very logical suggestion. And so um, it really was a shame. And she's essentially, I guess, um, been proven right. I guess, has there been more research done to validate that indeed, yes, like these numbers are just not explainable except by something like a social contagion? Um, Not uh, as much as I would like. uh, No, 
However, that's not because it hasn't been tested. People haven't tested it. I haven't seen enough new research to show it other than Lisa Lippmann's study, which was very comprehensive. But mm-hmm. I do think one thing that shows the social contagion aspect of it, if this was like being gay, because when, you know, it became acceptable for being gay or lesbian or bi, maybe, you know, 30, 40 years ago, when, you know, a lot of young people came out as gay, lesbian, bi, and then a lot of older people came out. You know what I mean? So there was a recalibration within society. There was a following and the middle aged people, they didn't come immediately. They didn't come as many numbers, but they came and they came out. This hasn't happened in the trans situation. The numbers are ferociously high in the adolescence. But women like me, I'm 47. We're not coming in any sort of corresponding numbers. We're not suddenly saying I'm trans. In fact, there's very little, very little evidence of that, which makes me think, well, that that really represents social contagion, that it's huge in one cohort and it's not correspondingly big, because surely there should be millions of women who are mm-hmm. desperate to transition um, from previous generations. It, it doesn't make sense. If, if this 4,000 isn't socially contagious, well, then everybody else from all the other generations should be seeking transition, and they're not. Mm-hmm. So in a convoluted way, I, I think that kind of is very telling. So what about the psychology profession? It does not seem that very many have the bravery that you do to speak up about this. And it's almost as if they fell in with whatever it has it is the activists um you know people have charged that big pharma companies make an awful lot of money um from some of these drugs produced so and this is probably a whole other podcast but um just wondering your your perspective on that being a practitioner yourself uh, in particular yeah i i think we've moved from a therapeutic process to therapeutic support back in the day when i started as a therapist what I would offer if you came to me would be a process, which means, you know, you come, we we begin a relationship. The presumption is it's going to be deep and it's going to be demanding and it's going to be thought provoking. There's going to be serious awareness. And then you're going to kind of be empowered to do your own thing in life. That, that's the kind of general idea. It's crept over to therapeutic support, which is kind of what the Samaritans give. And I'm delighted the Samaritans give it. If you ring up the Samaritans, they'll just be very soothing and they will support everything you say. And they won't ask you anything provocative and they won't ask you anything that might engage thought. They're just trying to nod along. And some people would call it the nodding dog of therapy, where you're just nodding along. Now, while it can be very satisfying in the short term for somebody to nod along, it's not satisfying on a deep level. And it doesn't really give you any sort of merit in the long term. It doesn't really have value in the long term. So I think we have fallen into it. I think a lot of therapists, we're so interested in being empathic. We're so interested in in just falling in with with the person in front of us that we forget that we were trained within, you know, a quite serious discipline to offer something that has real value. And just nodding along is, is denigrating therapy And it's not giving respect to the person, because if you were my best friend and you came to me with a problem and I just nodded saying, yeah, 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 I wouldn't be really being somebody who's offering you something of value. You'd feel a little bit empty from it. You go, "Mm, yeah, mm," it was kind of. mm." And that's the same with 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 somebody who just nods within a therapeutic process. It's it's kind of satisfying, but it's a little bit empty and it's a little bit vacuous. I'm devastated that my profession seems to have lost its way so 
badly. I'm 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 thrown. I I'm I'm disappointed. There are some great, you know, therapists out there. I think an awful lot are very very frightened. You don't usually find too many therapists involved in politics. We generally are tending to kind of be conflict averse. We're we're trying to kind of just you know, roll things out so it's a better world. And we've been thrown into this, but we really haven't shown much integrity as a profession, and it's very disappointing. I want to take this one step further from Beth's question to the medical community in general. Obviously, as as Beth sort of alluded to, a lot of money being made on pharmaceuticals, on surgeries. Is that part of what is driving this? Is the money to be made on this? Well, there's huge money to be made. I don't really buy into the idea that the big pharma are kind of um, started it, but I have no doubt that they kind of looked at the landscape and said, all we need to do is do nothing and we are going to make a phenomenal level of money. And if we even comment once, we'll we'll be really attacked. So we just need to just zip it, hold tight, and we are going to collect massive amounts of money. That's my theory. Now, I might be completely wrong, but that's my feeling of, of where Big Pharma is. But, you know, when, when you look at the, the profession of psychology, there was a huge diagnostic creep happening anyway. And in a way, it's consumer driven healthcare. And are we going to be um, a situation where the client or the patient is a customer who walks and says, this is wrong with my heart. This is what I want you to give. And I'm going to pay it through my insurance. Or is it going to maintain into healthcare? Whereas I would say I am the qualified expert who recommends that you get A, B and C, which is it going to be? Because at the moment we seem to be kind of in a bit of a, a stand stalemate here where, where consumers seem to think that they can tell the doctors, this is what's wrong with me and these are the drugs I need. Now give me the prescription and I am the buyer and you are the seller. And I don't think our profession has really massively acknowledged the impact of a consumer driven healthcare system. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I'm not in that insofar as in Ireland, it's not completely private, but it's quite private. And it's just it's just spread out around the world where it's like we're treating vulnerable, really, really distressed people as customers as opposed to as patients. Do you have, in Ireland, do you have pharmaceutical advertising like we do here in the United States? I know I, I know years ago we were United States, one of the only two. I think New Zealand was the other one. I might be wrong. That allowed you know, advertising from pharmaceutical companies uh, on TV, which was, no. which obviously has pros and cons. I, I don't know. I don't think we do have it, but like, it's amazing. I just, I know we're coming to the end, but it's amazing. Uh, they had estrogen and testosterone bottled for decades before they started marketing it. And in the nineties, they started marketing estrogen and testosterone as essence of man, essence of woman. Now, before that medical transition only ever meant surgical reassi- surgical reassignment surgical operations and then marketing companies said testosterone equals maleness estrogen now there's a lot of things that equal femaleness or maleness we have basically consumed this idea without giving it much thought had you asked any of us here in 1982 does testosterone equal male you'd go well really what that got sold to us as a concept in the 90s. That's been traced. That was marketed to us. And we didn't even know it was being marketed to us. So it's just an interesting kind of aside. All right, last question, then we'll let you go. Optimistic, pessimistic, do you think we'll get enough people like yourself 
to speak up about these issues or are there just too many people being silenced to reverse what's going on? I am optimistic. I think in general, the truth will prevail. I think it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of courage. I think the more people uh, find their courage, the, the easier we will all find it. The fact is I get hundreds of emails every week of people who feel silenced and afraid. And if we could just bottle that and harness people's energy to actually speak out, honestly, the, the vast majority of the ordinary people completely agree with us, but they don't know very much about the issue. And all we need to do is keep talking. As we often say on this show, courage is contagious. We thank you for your courage. We obviously thank you for coming on Take Back Our Schools and being as brave as you are and speaking out on these issues and talking about your personal story. Uh, And we really appreciate that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we could have kept talking for another hour. I mean, she is so experienced and really, um, we do encourage people to go to, to GenSpec. There is so much information on the website um, that speaks to the trans issues. And she's really put a lot of time and thought and energy and really gathered a group of professionals that want to weigh in on this issue and especially say things that are just, you know, um, certain people don't want said. Well, it's fascinating that she has both the personal experience from her own life of sort of going through this or not fully going through this, but maybe almost going through it or recognizing that had she been born more recently, she would have been going through this herself. Uh, and then the, prof- you know, the, the professional experience yes. of being, you know, the, the so-called expert on this, um, you know, that's sort of a rare combination, I think. And her, the documentary we referenced, the trans kids, it's time to talk. It's 45 minutes long. It's available um, at the Genspect web- website. And I'm pretty sure in that, if I'm recalling that she does talk about, um, about that experience and how that did fuel kind of really all of these activities, including that documentary that, that have, um, you know, that she's taken on. So I was encouraged that she's optimistic. Um, she strikes me as yeah. a bit of a natural optimist. And so yeah. that, was, that was great. But I love. Well, she's um, got you got to be. I mean, as an act, I think we know this as an activist, you sort of have to be. Um, but it's it's an uphill battle, especially mm-hmm. when. Yeah, you know, she articulated so many people in the profession are being silenced mm-hmm. or scared to speak out or, or kicked off of social media or threatened. And so that's that's tough. I, you know, the one the one I want to push back, though, on one thing she said really quickly, and then we'll close. Um, and, and it's. She said this early in the conversation, which is, you know, it's the job of school, something like this, to keep kids safe. Um, There is a question, there's a debate to be had on what that means and how how far a school needs to go on keeping kids safe. I mean, I wrote this in my own really letter, you know, where the school kept saying our number one job is is safety. No, your number one job is education. Okay, safety Mm -hmm. is important. We can define what that means, but no, your number one job is education. you know, that, that's just something I would have liked to follow up on, because on, on, I know she's also written about the mm-hmm. excessive safetyism culture, um, which is one of the reasons I think we've gotten in this mess we've gotten ourselves in. No, I'd agree. And that whole notion that, you know, that overemphasis on safety comes at the price of a, a, a child learning resilience, really. Yeah. Um, and so they do, you know, and she does, by the way, have a guidance book for schools uh, on the trans issue. Just going back to the GenSpec, there's probably 10 or so of these brief guidance, uh, they're called. 
um, on various topics. Some are for parents, friends, and family, uh, schools, colleges, universities, pediatricians. So um, there's there's a whole lot of information, and she probably goes a little bit more into detail about what that what that actually means. Uh, but no, I would guess that she um, that that the safety does not mean justifying indulging um, every yeah. every whim, particularly of a of a preteen and preteen girl. Well, we hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm Andrew Gutman. On behalf of my co-host, Beth Feely, we invite you to review us and share us. And we hope you liked what you heard. And we'll talk to you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.